If you worship at First Parish in Cambridge, it won't be long before you hear the voice of Howard Thurman. His words uplift our liturgy from the service of remembrance to Christmas Eve. I will sing a new song, he proclaims. Keep fresh before me the moments of my high resolve, he prays. Look well to the growing edge, he exhorts. Find the island of peace within your own soul, he entreats. Howard Thurman's ministry spanned Jim Crow, lynching, civil rights, and black power. Out of the crucible of segregation and racist violence, he forged an ethic of integrity, nonviolence, courage, and love that resonates powerfully today. He never held public office, never organized an advocacy group, never led a mass movement, but his preaching, teaching, and character made him one of the most admired and beloved leaders of the 20th century. You can see his photographic portrait now displayed in the library of our parish house. Howard Thurman was born in 1899 in Daytona Beach, Florida. When he was seven, his father died suddenly of pneumonia. Because the family was too poor to buy a coffin, Howard was sent door to door to ask neighbors for donations. His father had not been a churchgoer, and the local pastor refused to bury him. A traveling evangelist volunteered to lead the funeral, at which he condemned the dead man's soul to hell. Aghast, Howard kept whispering to his mother, he didn't know Papa, did he? Did he? The little boy vowed never to have anything to do with church. But led by his mother and grandmother, Howard came to discover in church a communal experience that gave him, he later reflected, a fontal sense of worth that could not be destroyed by any of life's outrages and enhanced my consciousness that whatever I did with my life mattered. At age 12, with the singing of the congregation in his ears, he was baptized in the Halifax River. Still, the essence of Howard's childhood vow endured in his lifelong passion for religion that welcomed all and excluded none. Howard was a sensitive, introverted child pained by the violent racism of the Deep South. He found solace in the night and in nature, which brought him his first mystical experiences. The night, he later wrote, was more than a companion. It was a presence, an articulate climate in which I felt embraced, enveloped, held secure. Standing alone at the edge of the vast ocean, he found a special benediction. The ocean and the night together surrounded my little life with a reassurance that could not be affronted by the behavior of human beings. The ocean at night gave me a sense of timelessness of existing beyond the reach of the ebb and flow of circumstances. Death would be a minor thing 
I felt in the sweep of that embrace. In those days, Florida, the entire state of Florida, had only three public high schools for blacks. So Howard left home to attend the Baptist Academy in Jacksonville. Finishing first in his class earned him a full tuition scholarship to Morehouse College, without which his education would have ended right there. Famed Morehouse President John Hope always addressed his students as young gentlemen to contradict the contempt in which white society held black males. Excited by Morehouse's expectations of excellence, Thurman graduated as valedictorian. But when he sought admission to Newton Theological Seminary in Massachusetts, now Andover Newton, Thurman received from its president a polite letter explaining that the seminary did not admit Negroes. Rochester Theological Seminary, noting its policy of admitting no more than one Negro per year, offered him the spot. A week after graduating from seminary, Thurman married a young teacher, Katie Kelly, and together they took the train to Oberlin, Ohio, where Thurman had been named pastor of Mount Zion Baptist Church. He liked the northern college town where he didn't have to whoop and holler to please the congregation. Although his preaching swiftly attracted white worshipers from the college and beyond, not one of them joined his church. Still, the diversity in his pews quickened Thurman's desire to build community among a broad range of people. After three years in Oberlin, Katie's declining health compelled them to warmer Atlanta, where Howard became director of religious life and professor of religion at Morehouse and Spelman Colleges. Katie died within months. Two years later, Howard married YWCA staffer Sue Bailey, and this union of the soul would endure until his death a half century later. Howard and Sue moved to Washington, D.C., where he joined the faculty of Howard University as dean of Rankin Chapel and professor of Christian theology. Despite the racial segregation in the nation's capital, Thurman attracted a wide spectrum of worshipers. The Sunday chapel service, he remembered proudly, provided a time and a place where race, sex, culture, material belongings, and earlier religious orientation became undifferentiated in the presence of God. In 1935, Howard and Sue were invited by the World Student Christian Federation to lead an African-American delegation touring India, Burma, and Ceylon. In India, they sought out Mahatma Gandhi, who greeted them warmly. Gandhi confided his hope that African-Americans might be the ones to deliver the message of nonviolence to the world. Giving nearly 50 lectures in South Asia, Thurman was constantly questioned about the role of Christianity in suppressing people of color. While he took pains to distinguish the teachings of Jesus from the discriminatory practices of the church, he could not, he could not cite a single instance of a truly integrated American congregation. Passing over the legendary Khyber Pass between Afghanistan and Pakistan, Thurman experienced a vision that would change his life. We saw clearly what we must do somehow 
when we returned to America. We knew that we must test whether a religious fellowship could be developed in America that was capable of cutting across all racial barriers with a carryover into the common life, a fellowship that would alter the behavior patterns of those involved. It became imperative now to find out if the experiences of spiritual unity among people could be more compelling than the experiences which divide them. In 1943, Thurman received a letter from Alfred Fisk, a white Presbyterian minister, asking if Thurman might recommend a young Negro just out of seminary to lead a new congregation in San Francisco called the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples. It would be the first intentionally multiracial church in the United States. We are committed to a real equality between the races, Fisk wrote, in all aspects of church organization. When Thurman's first nominee declined the position, it dawned on him that Fellowship Church might be the opportunity toward which my life had been moving to realize the vision of the Khyber Pass. Trusting in God, Thurman and his family abandoned the professional and cultural security of Howard University to risk something new, a racially integrated church. Their farewell dinner was held in the Universalist Church, one of the few places in the District of Columbia willing to hold an integrated gathering at that time. In San Francisco, no Presbyterian church would sponsor the inaugural service of an integrated congregation. So the service was hosted enthusiastically by First Unitarian Church. Fittingly, Thurman noted, because of the historic leadership in the anti-slavery cause of its former minister, Thomas Starr King. While Unitarian and Universalist support for Thurman's intentionally multiracial congregation is commendable, it does beg the question, why did Unitarian Universalists wait decades to attempt our own? In nine years in San Francisco, Thurman grew a congregation that was 60% white, 35% African American, and 5% Latino and Asian American, from a broad array of professions and education levels. Though Christian in orientation, Fellowship Church explicitly affirmed the validity of spiritual insight wherever found. Despite or perhaps because of his success at Fellowship Church, in 1953, Thurman accepted an invitation from Boston University to become Dean of Marsh Chapel and Professor of Spiritual Resources and Disciplines, the first African American ever to take such a leadership role at a major historically white university. At BU, serving a student population of nearly 30,000, Thurman continued to explore the theory and practice of interfaith multicultural religion in both classroom and chapel. During the 1950s and 60s, his meditations broadcast on radio and television reached millions of Americans. In 1953, Life magazine named him one of the century's greatest preachers. In 1956, he delivered the Ware Lecture to the American Unitarian Association. In 1965, Thurman retired to establish the Howard Thurman Educational Trust 
and to write and lecture until his death in 1981. Howard Thurman was a mystic who preached the conscious and direct exposure of the individual to God. Such an experience, he wrote, seems to the individual to be inclusive of all the meaning of his life. There is nothing that is not involved. But his was a socially engaged mysticism. At age 79, two years before his death, Thurman explained to the Congregation of First Unitarian Church of Berkeley, the mystic's concern with the imperative of social action is not merely to improve the condition of society. It is not merely to feed the hungry, not merely to relieve human suffering and human misery. If this were all, in and of itself, it would be important, surely. But this is not all. The basic consideration has to do with the removal of all that prevents God from coming to life in the individual. Whatever there is that blocks that calls for action. Like Unitarian Christians, Thurman taught the religion of Jesus rather than the religion about Jesus. He saw Jesus not as God, but as an exemplar of the divine manifesting as human. The, for instance, of the mind of God. What Jesus did with life, Thurman insisted, others can do if they are willing to use the tools that are at hand. In words nearly identical to our Unitarian Universalist first principle, he called Jesus' birth, quote, the symbol of the dignity and inherent worthfulness, unquote, of every person. In his most influential work, Jesus and the Disinherited, Thurman argued that Jesus' message for the poor the disinherited, the dispossessed, was to renounce fear, deception, and hatred and embrace a nonviolent love ethic of forgiveness and reconciliation. Love is possible. Love is possible, Thurman declared, only between two freed spirits. Thurman rejected segregation because of the damage it inflicted on souls, both black and white. More than integration, Thurman sought fellowship among peoples in which meaningful and creative experiences break down the barriers between us and sympathetic understanding leads to goodwill. Just as Unitarian Universalists balance the inherent worth and dignity of every person with the interdependent web of all existence, Thurman's spirituality was a never-ending dance of the personal and the social. In the moment of mystical vision, he wrote, there is a sense of community, a unity not only with God, but a unity with all of life, particularly with human life. Individual purification and living bring the realistic mystic face to face with the society in which one functions as a person. The community Thurman envisioned honoring diversity, grounded in equality, radiating love, 
is the same beloved community of Martin Luther King's Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream and ours. Such a community, Thurman insisted, must always be open to growth and to change. Community cannot feed for long on itself, he said. It can only flourish where always, always the boundaries are giving way to the coming of others from beyond them, unknown and undiscovered brothers and sisters. Some there were who criticized Thurman's absence from the barricades of activism. Why was he not in Selma, in Birmingham, in Watts, and Detroit? But political leadership was not his role, or his genius. Like Emerson and Thoreau, a century before, Thurman laid the philosophical foundation for political change. He saw the church not as an instrument of social change, but as an incubator of transformed individuals who would work to transform society. He was not a war chief, but a shaman. Not a drum major for justice like Dr. King, but a chaplain. His spirit and teaching inspired and consoled activists. While sharing their hunger for justice, he fed their even deeper hunger for meaning, without which the struggle for justice cannot be sustained. Vincent Harding, who spoke from this pulpit last year, recalls how the young leaders of the civil rights movement absorbed the transformative message of Jesus and the disinherited. Dr. King carried the book in his briefcase. Vernon Jordan listened to tapes of Thurman's meditations while recovering from a sniper attack. James Farmer, a student of Thurman's at Howard, credits Thurman with instilling in him the conviction that Gandhi's nonviolence could succeed in the United States. Jesse Jackson testifies that Thurman sowed the seeds that bred a generation of activists. Howard Thurman wrote that his ministry had one single purpose. Religious experience must unite rather than divide us. There must be made available experiences by which the sense of separateness will be transcended and unity expressed. Experiences that are deeper than all diversity, but at the same time are enriched by diversity. I am convinced he said, it is possible to develop a religious fellowship so unifying in its quality that the barriers originally separating its members one from another will gradually disappear, leaving in their stead a new sense, a new sense of community. Amen, and blessed be.